Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Kevin Johnson, 37, died by lethal injection at the Eastern Reception Diagnostic and Correctional Center in Bon Terre. Tonight, the state of Missouri killed Kevin Johnson, an amazing father to his daughter Corey, and a completely rehabilitated man, Johnson's attorney Sean Nolan said in a statement. Make no mistake about it, Missouri capitally prosecuted, sentenced to death, and killed Kevin because he is black. Every attempt to lessen Johnson's sentence from death to life in prison has been denied since a St. Louis County jury first convicted him of first-degree murder in 2007. On Monday night, the Missouri Supreme Court ruled not to delay Johnson's execution over a special prosecutor's claims that racial bias affected Johnson's conviction and judgment. Johnson's lawyer swiftly appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court Tuesday morning in one final attempt to delay Johnson's execution. The court filed its denial of Johnson's request around 6.30 p.m. Tuesday night, 30 minutes after the 24-hour period for Johnson's execution. 30 minutes after the 24-hour period for Johnson's execution began. Johnson's was the first execution in Missouri since Carmen Deck in July. It's a rare case of Missouri executing someone for a crime they committed as a teenager. Missouri has executed only one man for a crime he committed as a teen since a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision in 2012 required states to rethink how they treat youthful offenders. Former St. Louis County prosecuting attorney Bob McCulloch's won death penalty convictions against 23 men during his 28 years in office. 15 were black. Cases with white victims during McCulloch's tenure were 3.5 times as likely to lead to a death sentence as those with black victims, according to a recent analysis by an expert hired by Johnson's attorneys. A prison spokeswoman estimated that 125 people crowded outside Missouri's prison in Bon Terre in support of Johnson. Johnson's daughter, Corrie Ramey, was seen outside of the prison with a large group of Johnson's supporters. Ramey, 19, had filed a lawsuit to allow her to witness her father's execution. Missouri law bars anyone younger than 21 from witnessing an execution and a federal judge on Friday denied her request. Michelle Smith, co-director of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, said Tuesday that Ramey would not give any statement or interview on her father's execution. At least two of Johnson's former teachers traveled to Bon Terre for Johnson's execution. His elementary school principal and mentor, Pamela Stanfield, served as one of Johnson's four selected witnesses present in the room when he was given his lethal injection. Melissa Fwas, who taught Johnson English in high school, stood outside the prison. Fwas always remembered Johnson as the student who wrote a poem about giving his baby daughter a bath. 
They formed a friendship after Johnson's crime and wrote to each other frequently. I'm grieving him as someone who's become a friend to me, Foss said. But what is breaking my heart the most is the absolute injustice. The failure of our judicial system to protect and serve Kevin is only going to add pain on top of pain. If there is any silver lining for Johnson, Foss said, it's the lasting impact he made on the people who knew him. He gave Corey really strong roots, like roots of love and strength. He fostered her dreams and that can't be undone. Up next, we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On the evening of Saturday, October 29th, a prisoner detained at the Circle Juvenile Facility in Circleville, Ohio, assaulted a guard and took her keys. The prisoner then freed four other prisoners, who then left the building and entered a different unit used for programming activities. The facility was secured 30 minutes later. No injuries or damage was reported. A spokesperson for the Ohio Department of Youth Services alleged that three of those involved in the event had recently been moved to the facility because they had also participated in the uprising at Indian River Juvenile Correctional Facility that Perilous tracked last month. This event occurred on Saturday, October 22nd, in which a group of at least 12 juvenile detainees took control of and then destroyed their unit at the Indian River Juvenile Correctional Facility in Ohio. The group also gained access to a staff computer, logged into Facebook, and live-streamed themselves celebrating while destroying prison infrastructure. They smashed out the unit's interior windows and then smashed apart furniture and hurled it into the area outside the windows. They also found a cache of candy bars, which they ate in celebration. According to reports of the event, 12 detainees were arrested following the incident. Some of them were moved to the Circleville facility shortly after the uprising. On the early morning of Thursday, November 10th, two prisoners being held at the Chesterfield County Detention Center in Chesterfield, South Carolina, escaped. The details of the escape have not been reported beyond accusations that they stole a vehicle to flee. Both prisoners were recaptured the following day. On the night of Friday, November 11th, a youth detainee at the Adair County Juvenile Detention Center in Kentucky assaulted a guard, stole his keys, and released an unknown number of other detainees from their cells. According to a later whistleblower account, a female youth detainee says she was sexually assaulted during the ensuing disturbance. The prison administration has not yet shared where the young woman was housed, but according to a whistleblower account, housing females and males in the same unit was a common practice at the facility. The whistleblower also shared stories of young people being starved, beaten and held in conditions of isolation and sensory deprivation for extended periods of time, as well as a pattern of lies and cover-ups by staff and administrators. On Saturday, November 12th, two prisoners escaped their work area while detained at the Lincoln County Jail in Decatur, Alabama. The following day, one prisoner was reported dead on the scene, allegedly due to hypothermia. The other prisoner was recaptured. No other information has been provided, including autopsy reports. On Monday, November 14th, two prisoners escaped from the Newcastle Correctional Facility in Newcastle, Indiana. According to reports, they walked out of their minimum security housing unit around 5 p.m. and were recaptured two hours later by helicopter surveillance. On Tuesday, November 15th, 
two prisoners escaped from the Choctaw County Jail in Hugo, Oklahoma. According to reports, they escaped through the roof of the jail. They were both recaptured the same day in Mississippi in different locations. One prisoner was recaptured in Lauderdale County, Mississippi. The other prisoner was recaptured near the city of Madison in Mississippi. A group of 20 to 25 immigrant detainees held by Immigration and Customs Enforcement at the Cibola County Correctional Center in Milan, New Mexico, have been on hunger strike since October 18th, according to supporters and attorneys at the New Mexico Immigrant Law Center. The group released a letter from the detainees, which states in part, quote, This letter is to draw attention to the abhorrent conditions in which detained immigrants find themselves at the Cibola Detention Center and demand swift action for the release of the migrant detainees who are suffering racist treatment, negligence, psychological harm, torture, and inadequate immigration processes. The detainees also explained that their strike was motivated by two instances of negligence by guards and staff one in which a detainee fell from his bunk and hit his head and was not discovered by staff for four hours, and another in which a frustrated detainee attempted to kill himself by hanging. Quote, we need help urgency, the group concluded. We're not going to wait until one of us dies in here. Faith Eagle, an Indigenous woman detainee in Saskatchewan, Canada, has been on hunger strike for more than 10 weeks to protest conditions at the facility. Quote, I want to make my voice loud and clear that we are human. We deserve clean water. We deserve humane conditions. We deserve good, healthy food and to go outside when it's time, said Eagle in a telephone interview with Global News. Right now in our cell, there is nothing but cold water. The vents blow freezing cold air, Eagle continued. We just got off a 21-hour lockup and they're all single cells. We only get checked once an hour. In early November, male and female prisoners at several other facilities joined Eagle in our hunger strike for an unknown period of time, including a unit at the Regina Correctional Center and a unit in Rennes. Another prisoner, Charise Sutherland Casey's, also joined by conducting a weekend-long ceremonial fast in solidarity. Sutherland Casey's is housed at the Edmonton Institution for Women. Eagle's protracted strike was punctuated by a single meal when she was taken to the hospital on November 15th. The following day, she started a second strike. Sherry Mayer, with Beyond Prison Walls Canada, said that Eagle reported to her at the time that, quote, this one is for the children incarcerated in places like Dojak and Kilburn Hall, who are incarcerated so young for their addictions, which get them no help once inside. Locked away, not knowing the things they go through are not right. She says, this is for the children. She knows their struggle. She feels their pain and hears her cries. This one is for them. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. Prisoners in Pennsylvania are organizing a strike for early January 2023. Here is a selection from their call to action followed by their list of demands. Quote, Prisoners in Pennsylvania are organizing a labor strike to protest inhumane conditions in the Department of Corrections. Despite the rollback of lockdowns and restrictions in the free world, conditions in many prisons have not returned to pre-COVID norms. It is affecting prisoners' emotional well-being by restricting their ability to maintain family connections through contact visitation. It is affecting prisoners' mental health 
by keeping them locked in a cell the size of a bathroom with another person for nearly 20 hours a day. It is affecting their physical health as some prisoners with jobs receive as little as four hours per week in an outdoor exercise area. And sometimes, taking advantage of that would mean they are not allowed to take a shower. Prisoners in Pennsylvania have started an organization called SPARK and have been surveying their peers, listening to their frustrations, and collecting their complaints. They have compiled a list of demands and set the date for January 6, 2023 to begin the strike, a demonstration and protest against the state's oppressive policies. This action is also a statement that they are standing up in solidarity with the imprisoned women and men in Alabama. Quote, in Pennsylvania, there's Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Alabama in between, unquote. That statement was made in reference to politics and the conservative mentality of Pennsylvania. There is a reason why Pennsylvania state prisons are not located near Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, to make sure the areas with the highest populations of black and brown people do not reap the economic benefits of mass incarceration. If it must be Alabama in between, then let's give them Alabama. The prisoners of Alabama DOC launched a statewide labor strike earlier this year and called for the rest of the nation's prison population to stand in solidarity and quote-unquote let the crops rot in the field. Here is a list of demands formulated by the prisoners. End sexual harassment and rape by staff in women's facilities. End all harassment and racism in all facilities. Raise wages for all workers, minimum wage for skilled workers and CI workers. End outsourcing mail to Florida, which takes jobs from Pennsylvania. End outsourcing commissary to SecurePAC, taking jobs from Pennsylvania. End price gouging on tablets. Allow video visits on tablets. Pass geriatric bill. End life sentences for second-degree murder. Allow parole for lifers. Adequate and edible food served at required temperature. End abuse in solitary confinement. Allow RHU prisoners to order food. Food cannot be used as punishment. Open all dining halls. Provide more recreation and outdoor exercise time, followed by showers. Criteria for earning commutation instead of arbitrary decisions. Parole eligibility for everyone after 15 years. Flat sentencing. Family picnic days on visits. Conjugal visits. Single cells for those who want that. And now we share an interview conducted by James Kilgore, who spoke with Albert Woodfox and Robert King of the Angola Three. After that, we'll feature part of Kilgore's interview with Seku Kambui, a longtime new African political prisoner who reflects on his involvement in past prison strikes. Woodfox spent more time in solitary confinement than anyone else in the U.S. and was released shortly before this conversation took place. Woodfox died earlier this year, so we wanted to return to this 2016 interview to honor his memory. Further, all the interviewees share important reflections on past prison strikes, which feels particularly apt given the January strike called in Pennsylvania. James Kilgore is a former anti-imperialist urban guerrilla who fought in the U.S. and, while in exile, organized against the apartheid regime in South Africa. After capture and extradition to the U.S., he served six and a half years in prison and now teaches at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Next up is an interview between Kilgore and two recently released Black Panther prisoners, Robert King and Albert Woodfox. King and Woodfox, along with the late Herman Wallace, were known as the Angola Three, each serving decades in solitary confinement due to their role in organizing other prisoners at the infamous Angola prison in Louisiana.
to go on a hunger strike, if you want to go on a hunger strike, just in prison, that is the boys of the prisoner. Mm -hmm. Going on a hunger strike because you could file a petition, you could say anything you want to say, but the boys of the prisoner is the hunger strike because they, they hear that, you know, and they, they hear that because you create a situation that is conflicting with with prison rules and disciplinary rules and institutional rules. It creates a, a situation that they consider, in my opinion, hazards to them in a sense of publicity. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do their best to try to, uh, you know, suppress this. That's but right. you, the only weapon that a person has is that is, is, uh, in prison and the biggest bars that they got. Because there are, there are a lot of other things you have to consider too because they are considering the fact that they have to report. After 72 hours, they have to make individual reports of every individual who's on fast. That's the way they did it there. And then mm -hmm. after that, they have to take you. They have they to have bring you to the hospital. The notify the, well, and they have to notify medical uh, hospital, also doctors to come in. Uh -huh. I mean, these are things that they have to do. And the longer it goes, the, the more potent this thing becomes, the longer it goes. So that is a good thing. That is the only thing. Most effective tool that prisoners have is hunger strikes, but they're so brutal. They take such a toll on you. And before that, uh, guys used to cut themselves, you know, mm -hmm. cut their wrists, cut their heels and stuff like it there, you know. But it became very costly for the for the institution, you know. But the hunger strike is probably the most effective tool prisoners have, but it's so brutal. It comes at such a high cost. Mm -hmm. But uh, as King said, they are, you know, they create situations where you don't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be able to get up and look yourself in the mirror the next day, you know. You got to keep going. Yeah. And we uh, we usually always try to resolve issues without, uh, uh, you know, resorting to hunger strike. We do petitions and stuff and send. We give them, like, two weeks. And... Uh, so did you all do a lot of hunger strikes to Angola 3? Yeah, yeah, but the longest we did was 45 days, and that was at that time they used to put our food on the, you know, bring the trays on the on the chair, and put them on the floor, and slide them under the door. And we wanted them to cut food slots in the bar so they could sit. So it has a long history because we didn't eat for 45 days, and then we had we made a compromise because we had to eat. You know, some of the guys were including myself, you know, were getting really in bad shape. So they they agreed that we could hold our trays and eat through the bars, and they would cut the you know, food slots in the bars eventually. We ate through the bars uh, 18 months before they started cutting the bars. And then when they did, you know, you know they say, you know, uh, Necessity is the, is the mother of creation. So eventually, guys started making it. King made the first one, these little shelves made out of cardboard and string where you could still stand there holding the tray. You could oh, set right, the tray. Right, right. Oh, yes, yes, so, yeah, yeah, everybody, everybody picked up on that. And uh, But that lasted 18 months. And then when they finally did come to cut, since our tier, we was on a D tier, was the strongest tier, and A tier was the strongest tier. That's where Harmon was. The other two tiers pretty much caved in. And but we stayed on the hunger strike until we were able to force that compromise. 
and they made sure that we were the very last tier the king uh tier king I was on, <laughs> that they cut the balls and then they they cut all of them but four they were so determined to make god pull a trade under that under that door again you know but because of the the, the level of conscience that had been uh, created on the tier you know, uh, King, myself, and a couple of other guys even, uh, uh, you know, offered to trade cells with, you know, God, so they could be in the cell with the food slot, and, you know, we would be in the cell and still eat through the bars off the trades if we had a, you know, but the guys said, nah, we see, we know what's going on here, you know. So after about a month of that, what, a month or so, we went before the board and we told them, either you cut the, the rest of the cell or we're going on a hunger strike again. And so they made like they didn't know, you know, like, what you mean, cut the rest of the hunger, you know, the rest of the bar, we still got four cells on our tier. You didn't cut, you know, you say you ran out of out of material. Yeah. So, you know, So what year, what year was that? Uh, when it was in the 80s, huh? Uh, yeah, that was around during the early 80s. Early 80s, yeah. Somewhere so, you, but... Well, no, it was more like because I went to Camp James '79. '79. We so did all this. Yeah. yeah, so we did yeah. all this. Uh, we we uh, did all this before Camp yeah. James. So that Probably was like '78, about '75. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but you, I mean, you all didn't. You, you didn't. You couldn't labor strike because you were locked down all the time, right? You didn't. No, you we, never we, had we jobs. We did support. I yeah. mean, I've always been a supporter of organized labor. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, these right to light laws, I think, are the worst. Probably mm. some of the worst. Legislation that's ever been passed. Oh, the right know? to work you stuff, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, the right to work laws, you know. Uh, they virtually get all the benefits of the organized labor, you know, and yeah, they don't yeah. have to do anything. Right, right. You know? <laughs> no sacrifice, but minute. Yeah. But you get the gain, yeah. So. So we'll see how we haven't. I mean, it seems like the thing went well yeah, in yeah. Holman yesterday, from what I've heard. Yeah. But I don't know about. I haven't heard much about other prisons. I know I this, some in South Carolina. You yeah, heard, heard nationwide. Nation, I heard. I heard the uh, person got good. I think nationwide that it went good. Uh, it went well. And I know there's been a lot of solidarity actions in the streets around the country. Yeah. Small right. towns, yeah, cities, but the people have become the, the right. The, 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 the people the, the, on the, the outside, chain, you know, yeah, on the outside, the people binds all the, the prisons together, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's amazing. I mean, the, the support yeah, they they've got. They, yeah, yeah, they can't isolate prison by prison by prison. Anymore. No, now it's a movement. You said, you know, the, the support that came to you, then to the Pelican Bay hunger strikers. Yeah. I mean, it all builds right. up into something right. that's. You can see this thing is. This is an amazing event. I mean, the people that are here. Yeah. I mean, we could never have something like this three or four years ago, even. You know. Yeah. You have this, and you get 40 or 50 people. You know? yeah. Now you got hundreds now of people. Got, got now, all of them. now we have to Ten worry about, about the comeback. Now we hear briefly about hunger and work strikes from Sekou Kambui, a longtime Black Liberation prisoner who recently won his freedom. Is there a tradition, a history of like strikes and hunger strikes in the Alabama prison system? Is it, is that, have Long been... years ago, mm -hmm. we 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 uh, did a lot of work strikes uh, because there were more work. People were working on the plantation-like uh, uh, situation on corn and cotton and sugar cane and and, and, and and you name it. And when would that have been? Or? In the in the sixties and seventies. But in the early 70s, we began to create a hostile environment uh, 
where the farm labor was concerned. You know, we would mm-hmm. go out and and we might work, say, from this table to the front table, and that's the end of that period. We're going in and come back. And when we come back out, we might work from this to that again, mm-hmm. and it's time to go back in. So the length of the rows was such that that amount of that amount of work was insufficient to provide right, them right. with what they needed or hoped for or wanted out of us. But what I used to talk to the fellows about is that as long as we're moving, so we take a baby step and a baby step and a baby step, as long as we were moving, then we couldn't be, we couldn't be locked up. Uh-huh. Uh, we couldn't be accused of refusing to work. So nobody gets rolled up. But we achieved the goal of destroying the economy that is based on our labor. Uh, in, in more recent years, just before I left, from time to time, they might hire, be hired by a private company to grow uh, tomatoes, mm-hmm. grow peas, mm-hmm. and they get paid 10, 15 cents a day and, uh, for their labor. And I guess the Department of Corrections would get the rest. Uh, they had got to the point where they were converting work releases into work camps, sending people to work release, but they weren't allowed to have a real job and make money. They were sent out to do. So it's the old convict leasing system. Yeah. Reworked, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know. Some people enjoy the opportunity and, you know, the freedom that that kind of atmosphere gives them. But some of us just find it that it's slave labor, slave labor. was a little bit of slave labor, a lot of slave labor. It's still slave labor. So, uh, you know, we went into it with, with the kind of mind and spirit that I'm not going to be used like this you know so I do just what I need to do to keep you from being in a position to cause me any harm you know? mm-hmm. so I'm working you so know. Were the, so at that time in the 60s and 70s were I mean like was it the situation that almost everybody that was in the prison was working in the fields yeah or? yeah pretty, pretty much, much. Uh-huh. Uh, you would say I used to argue in my classes that you know the state of Alabama who is who we work for as an incarcerated person, uh, I stopped calling them inmates, and I, you know, I got individuals to understand that mm-hmm. we are incarcerated people, mm-hmm. not inmates. Mm-hmm. Inmates are people who are mentally sick mm-hmm. and are sent to an asylum, and they call you an inmate. So I'm not an inmate. I'm not mentally imbalanced, and so therefore I'm simply an incarcerated person fighting to be free. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. If you want to support our work, please visit patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. You can also find us on all social media platforms. 
You can hear our archive of over 300 episodes at kitelineradio.org. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening.